Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. Today I'm joined by special guest Sarah Saburi, Chief Economist at Tosca Fund, and Knight Frank Head of UK Residential Research, Tom Bill. So today we'll be doing something a little bit different again. Tom and I will be getting Savas to challenge some of the headlines dominating the news. So this is a new format of the podcast, and it will see Tom and I quizzing Savas about some of the key COVID-related concerns we've seen in the media about the UK economy, job prospects, and politics. So welcome, Savas. Thanks so much for joining us. And we'll begin with a fairly challenging question, I think. So the UK economy won't recover until at least 2023, according to some leading economists. Do you agree with this? I do not agree with it, and I take a great deal of issue with that prediction. You say leading economists, if you look at the OBR, which I think has a great deal of authority and has been wonderfully accurate over recent years, and even, if I may say so, the Bank of England, which hasn't been as accurate over recent years, neither the Bank of England's economic forecasting and especially the OBRs suggest anything other than a short, sharp shock. Is that what you're seeing coming through? Is this, is this a V-shaped recovery, essentially, that we're looking at? Well, again, we can go through the alphabet soup of what the shape will look like, and we can reflect back on it once we've seen it. The important thing is GDP. GDP is a flow of earnings. It's a bit like a company's cash flow or profit and loss. And there's been an interruption to GDP because we haven't been able to do the things that we traditionally have done. In terms of national wealth, do not imagine that that, that in aggregate has been impaired Far from it. I think that if you look at the aggregation of the economy, parts of it have done remarkably well, have been beneficiaries of this. You only need to look at the logistics and e-commerce side of it. E-finance has done remarkably well. Hardly gets mentioned in the press. The press headlines are about the impairment of the economy through high street retail, shopping centres, leisure industry. You'd imagine this country was entirely based on those sectors, and it isn't. The agglomeration of the UK is what I look at. And there are reasons to imagine that the response of GDP from Q3, where we are now operating from, into Q4 and into 2021 will be sequential growth. Yes, recession has happened because Q1 and Q2 were negative Q on Q, which is technically a recession. The idea that we're going to get more quarter on quarter declines in GDP is absurd. And I use the word absurd because it is an absurdity to suggest it when there is so much coiled or pent-up activity that we're going to start seeing, or we have started seeing. But what, Savas, you say it's absurd, but surely if there's a second wave or a second lockdown, this whole recovery will be derailed again. And that's a very good question and probably the most common concern out there, not simply for the UK, but every country. And here's the issue. We've had our shock. Not being prepared for this was basically why we were forced to do things and then reverse things. And we now know basically the rules. We can localise, as we have done in Leicester. There won't be a national lockdown. We have the Nightingale hospitals. The whole idea was we locked down because we were ill-prepared. It cannot be said that we're ill-prepared now. So am I suggesting there won't be a second wave? Of course there will be, as there is being a second wave in Australia and China and into France and Spain, Italy. The second wave will be a far more modest economic shock. And it will be offset by the propulsion in the other parts of the economy that have been unlocked. Is it a possibility that we have a second wave? It's a near certainty. Will it be a cause for economic concern? No. You talk about the other sectors of the economy, Sabas. Is GDP now a bit of an outdated thing to try and use as a yardstick? And what are those sectors of the economy that are now emerging and will help propel the economy forward? GDP as a concept, as a metric, was, was discovered or rather created in the 1600s. 
when countries were mercantilist, they were physical. Much of what we did, you could actually measure at the port side, things leaving, things arriving, factories. In a postmodern UK economy, GDP is an anachronism. It is completely missing the e-commerce and e-financial sectors, service sectors that if you're an accountant or a lawyer, if you're an architect, what you're doing overseas isn't being captured either in domestic GDP or in balance of payments. So yes, it is an anachronism. And would you believe the Bank of England and the Treasury have been looking into a postmodern measure of economic activity for the UK? And that's work in progress. The parts of the economy that we should think about are just imagine the logistics and warehousing surge that we've seen as we've been delivered to our homes, things that we had until recently gone out to pick up physically. So the come to me economy has surged. We've seen it in the retail penetration of the internet going from about 20% to close to 40%. It won't revert back to 20%. There's been a permanent surge in the way that we perform e-commerce. People like me who were relatively late to the e-commerce, e-finance revolution have now crossed the line permanently because we've been forced to. So there's been a whole new market of sort of recalcitrant or reluctant to take us up as of this. So that market, the public sector, the public sector came into this shock woefully undermanned, under-resourced. We know that because we had arguably eight years of unnecessary austerity. Austerity should have ended in 2012, and it continued for reasons that I can hardly understand. So we had a public sector that was leaner and meaner than it should have been. So you've got a public sector that, that will emerge from this with rapid recruitment. We're seeing it, irony of ironies, yesterday the announcement was job centres to hire more staff to help allocate workers into jobs. It's almost a tautology. The mere process of hiring workers that create jobs is a job creator. And the other thing that I have to emphasize is that this is not like the 70s or 60s or 80s where the jobs being lost were structural. The end of coal mining and shipbuilding and steelmaking and tie making in the UK where you were laying off workers who had skills that were non-transferable. If you work in retailing, you can move swiftly into e-commerce. Your skills are transferable. And that's but, just, but Savas, despite the fact, obviously, you know, there could be a shift to e-commerce, a further shift to that. I mean, surely we haven't seen the full impact. And by October, when the furlough scheme ends, we'll then see the full effects of unemployment and how far that's going to rise. If it's a statement, I disagree with it. If it's a question, time and time will tell. So my PhD is in labour economics. I've been working commercially for 30 years. This is an area of the economy that I know particularly well. And I don't do false optimism. I do realism. The recruitment drive in the public sector, the recruitment drive across sectors that have done rather well from this, on top of which you've got an entire new approach to business that this crisis has triggered. For instance, we're no longer going to rely upon lean inventories, the just-in-time inventory management system that we became used to up to this, where storage and stockpiles were kept at the bare minimum. That's gone. You're going to need high inventories because just-in-time will be replaced by just-in-case, which means more warehousing which consumes more land and more labour. We're going to also demand that sectors that we had hitherto offshored, things that we were happy to basically send overseas to be done, we're going to demand we have a degree of reshoring because we want supply security. It won't make us any more efficient because the reason we're not doing these things is because we weren't that good at them in terms of affordability, but we're going to bring them back. So you've got a number of factors that are going to stimulate the economy even before you get fiscal stimulation that the Chancellor will certainly put into place. And if I've got a concern, it's not that we come out of this crisis, out of this lockdown on a shallow recovery, but we over-simulate it and have to rein it back in 20... So this, we won't see recovery to 2023. I think by late 2021, we're going to be asking ourselves, 
What do we do basically to pull in the economy from its over-exuberance? What do you make of the economic news flow coming out? I mean, there's something for everyone, isn't there? There's something for the pessimist, there's something for the optimist. What do you make of the data that's coming out at the moment? Well, I disagree. There's credible data for the pessimist. The pessimists are, are digging for bad data. Let's think about it. Where is Woolworths? Where is Autosports? Where is BHS? Where is CNA? Where is Littlewoods? Retailers come and go. Restaurant chains come and go. The damage on the high street and the shopping centres and across casual dining, mid-market casual dining, was happening before this crisis. It was a behavioural change. So what this has done effectively is it's basically accelerated the process of decline. This has not been the cause of it, simply a stimulant to the rebalancing. So the pessimists are picking on things that were going to happen anyway. The idea that somehow casual dining would have had a fantastic 2020 and so too retailing on the high street was absurd. The decline that was shallow has been accelerated by being accelerated. So the steeper you make the decline on traditional leisure and retailing, the steeper you've made the growth in alternative retailing and leisure. So look at the way we've begun using technology to stream live things. These are not labour unintensive industries. It takes labour to provide content. It takes labour to deliver things to your front door. In fact, you could argue that delivering a tin of baked beans to your front door is more labour intensive than delivering a tin of baked beans to a supermarket that then you go to buy from. That is a factual statement. And yet the journalistic narrative, all I can do is talk about the journalistic narrative, is misplaced. Do you think that it's, I mean, obviously we have, lots of our listeners will be in the property market, buyers and sellers, and they'll be getting their news from the headlines and what they're reading in the paper. I mean, do you see a divergence between what you're seeing being written and what you're actually, you know, what you're, the conclusions that you're coming to when you perform this analysis? So is there a big divergence there? I do two things. One is I base my views on a combination of macro and micro. You look at the macro in totality, you then compare the macro with what you're picking up from micro corporate news surveys, that whether it's PMIs or hearing from the likes of Mike Frank and other agents. At 54 years old, I'm lucky enough that I have lines of communication with some very, very senior people across all forms of the economy, all parts of the economy, including real estate. And yes, it's true that if you're a landlord, you're facing delinquency in your rents. And part of that delinquency is genuine because the occupiers simply aren't getting income. Another part is gaming. This is probably the biggest game theory story in modern history where opportunism is at work here. Everyone's claiming to be in more distressed state to change the balance of power between them and their counterparty. Is it wrong? It's what is to be expected. So what I'm picking up from the real estate market is quite different from what I'm picking up from the, the journalistic narrative about real estate. So whether it's resi or commercial, if you're in commercial space, commercial is a broad church of different sectors you know we all know that you've got logistics and you've got retail and you've got leisure if we focus entirely on retail and leisure of course the story isn't particularly encouraging but it's very bleak but then you shift across to logistics and warehousing and all the paraphernalia that feeds into e-commerce and the story is far far different far 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 more encouraging and it's that balanced approach that is being lost and I've, i've not even touched upon the fact that the uk is simply one component of a pan-european marketplace in fact, one component of a global marketplace. And we can talk about the UK out of context, but we should really talk of it in context. And the context is, how is the UK going to fare compared to mainland Europe? It is inconceivable that the UK fares worse than Spain, Italy, Greece, France, Portugal, countries that rely upon mass travel far more than we do. The UK sends around about 70 million of its nationals overseas every year, simply on holiday. And we welcome every year about 33 million. So we are a net importer of tourism. Perhaps that brings us on to Brexit, which is still bubbling away in the background. You sort of said that there'll be a pragmatic 
economically self-interested conclusion to this. Do you still believe that to be the case? I believe it all the more so. That the European Union and within it, the Eurozone, can ill afford a cliff edge end to the transition. So that come December 31st, very possibly come November, in fact, if not sooner, the white smoke will billow from the chimneys of Strasbourg and Brussels. And we'll know that there's a deal that's been thrashed out, a deal that means the UK leaves on a degree of terms that is seen by both sides as being a victory. Everyone will parade the deal as being the best for them. Brexiteers will parade it, so will... What, what makes you so, so hopeful? Not hopeful, knowledgeable. Game theory. Imagine, imagine I'm wrong. So do the counterfactual. Imagine I'm wrong and that we get to a cliff edge. The UK and the EU bang heads so that there's no deal. So that come January the 31st, the UK reverts to WTO terms. The one thing you can say with certainty is the pound goes to parity against the euro. At best, it could fall below parity. Now, it serves no one's interest in Portugal, Greece, Spain, Malta, Cyprus, Ireland for the pound to go down because the UK, as I mentioned, is a net consumer of tourism in these countries. We are net importers of their goods and services. We provide their nationals here with remittances sent home. So a weak pound is not what the Eurozone can deal with at the moment. And they know that. There are lots of corporate back channels. Whether you're Volkswagen or Rolls-Royce, whether you're Audi or Lidl, whether you're Melia Hotels, whether you're Santander, whether you're Ferrovial, whether you're Vinci or Veolia, lots and lots of European corporates are telling their governments in Madrid, in Paris, in Rome, in Stockholm, please do a deal with the UK because a weak pound does not help us. What about looking beyond Europe, Savas? I mean, do you think that the relations with China and the UK, do you think that could potentially bring up issues for the UK economy? If I've got concerns, one concern is that we overstimulate the UK through overly generous fiscal measures. Another concern is that we do so much to antagonise the Chinese that they look elsewhere. Now, the good news is that there's nowhere else for the Chinese to look in the Western Hemisphere, if you exclude Canada, of course. So I think we can play with the Chinese so far. I think it would be a big mistake to remove Huawei from all G5 in the UK. They're already down to 35%. 35% is a minimal interest. Do I think it's a mistake to invite 3 million Hong Kong nationals to come to the UK? Of course not. I'm less concerned about the Hong Kong passport story than I am about the Huawei one. Let's be honest. On the dance card the UK has, there are no other dance partners economically than China. Because for years to come, the European Union will be handicapped impaired. For years to come, so too with the US. We need to look to where around the world you have healthy economies in the medium to long term. And that isn't going to be Europe or the US. It will be Asia and those countries that link from Asia, two of which are Canada and Australia. So if I was to be asked which English-speaking nation is most at risk economically over the coming years, the answer is simple, the US. Structural recession, stagflation. If I was to be asked which English-speaking economy is most attractive, I'd say, well, as much as I'd like the UK, the Australian and Canadian economies, in English-speaking terms, are going to be the ones with the strongest growth. The good news for us is that both the Canadians and the Australians, when they enjoy, as they have been, a surfeit of capital, their pension funds, their superannuation funds, seem to want to send it to the UK. So we're the direct beneficiary of Chinese economic activity, but also a secondary beneficiary from what we get from Canada and Australia because of their own direct benefits from China. So again, this is not a localised story. You need to look at the UK in totality in the whole, both within it, beyond the confines of poor retailing and leisure to other sectors, but also beyond the confines of Europe into the, as you say, into what's happening in China. And I'm confident that Boris Johnson has shown enough commercial acumen that despite his backbenchers trying to get him to divorce himself from Huawei, he'll be reluctant to do so. Again, this is work in progress. So I was just jumping back slightly, a question of something that I think is important to raise. You know, you're a chief economist at the hedge fund. 
you could take a long position, you can take a short position. Your views really are, are really as you see them. It's not necessarily based on your position. It's got a clear-sighted view of the economy. Well, it's, again, this is not conversation on my part. I don't work for some sort of think tank or consultancy or investment bank. This is a £4 billion hedge fund, and partner capital is here. And let's think about what we own. We own a large position in the world's biggest serviced office group in the form of IWG. That's going to be an area that's going to grow strongly because of the, the new working norms. We're confident enough that's going to happen that we've put a, degree of, a large degree of capital into it. Let me make one other point about being here. I was at Tosca Fund. I first signed up here in 2007, so I lived through the 208 crisis. The 208 crisis and the current crisis are being compared ad nauseum, particularly journalistically. They couldn't be more different. 208 was a car crash you could see coming in advance. Asset prices were overvalued. We were overleveraged. The pound was overvalued. So asset prices in, in the run to 208 were very, very overblown. Coming into this crisis, we've had four years of political uncertainty. We had the referendum in 216. We then had this 217 inconclusive general election. We then had years of minority government and collapsing minority government to the point that December 12th, we had the, a conclusive election. But even that wasn't conclusive because the view was, oh dear, we've got all these Brexiteers in Parliament they are going to create a bad Brexit. So we came into this crisis with asset prices far from overvalued, arguably anemically valued, a currency that was undervalued. The pound is, to my view, and this is important for real estate markets, the pound, to my view, was 40% overvalued in the run into 208. It's 30 to 40% undervalued now. This crisis struck with an undervalued currency as much as the till weight crisis struck with an equally overvalued pound. When the, this current valuation corrects, when the pound goes to 1.3 euros and 1.6 dollars, if not higher in both cases, asset prices in the UK will be seen to be what they are, undervalued now, across the piece, retail and so residential and commercial. Even retail will have a rebirth. The reworking of traditional shopping centres and the high streets will create a completely different landscape and also create investment opportunities that you shouldn't turn your nose up to. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Thank you.